All right, appreciate the opportunities on Sunday afternoons that we get to hear from different people at different times. So uh, I try to get, kind of work a, a rotation somewhat. And, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, last time it was Zach's time to speak. He was gone, so uh, I've asked him to speak today. So Zach, you go ahead and come and share what the Lord's led on that. Perfect. Uh, is there anybody else out there who just loves taking photos and working with cameras? You do? Awesome. <laughs> well, I do not claim to be a professional, I'll tell you that. I have taken a lot of photos, and a lot of videos. I actually started doing that kind of stuff on my phone. I think it was like my first year of college, and um, I had been traveling with Adam and Keep Your Heart Ministries for a little bit there, uh, but I was still volunteering, and I was like, man, it would be so cool just to capture what's going on here and show people what it's like to come to one of our camps. So I broke up my phone, and I filmed some stuff, and it wasn't bad, but it was okay. It was okay. Um, and then eventually we got a camera, an official camera. I have sort of just taken to it. It's so much fun. I think there's so many cool things about photography, uh, especially when you shoot manual, which means that you do all the settings yourself. There's no computer helping you along the way. Uh, it's, it's quite the process of like, okay, I've got to change this setting to, to make the, the photo look good, and then if I need this setting to stay here, then I'll move a different setting instead. So you're like moving these bars up and down. In my mind, I'm moving bars up and down to make it look good. Um, but the thing is with photography, how many of you have ever taken a photo and, well, when you looked at it later, you realized that it was blown out completely. It was just completely white or like it was super bright, brighter than you wanted to, or maybe people's faces looked really shiny. Anyone do anything like that before? How many of you guys ever taken a photo, and when you looked at it later, it was too dark? It's like you couldn't really make out what was going on in the scene. Yeah. Um, that happens all the time in photography. Uh, and, and the big thing, especially with disposable cameras, how many of you guys have used those before? Yes. Hopefully everybody. Um, with those ones, you take a photo until much later. And so it might be blurry. Maybe you totally didn't take a picture of somebody at all. You cut their arm off. Or maybe it was too dark in the room. Um, I've shot some film on a film camera. Well, and there's no autofocus on that. So if I don't nail it, the whole photo is just noise, just blurry everywhere. Uh, with digital cameras, you sort of have uh, a little bit of a help there. Uh, you have some autofocus. The biggest problem is that exposure. Is it going to be too dark? Is it going to be too light? And so when I'll get my camera out, uh, I have this little thing right here called a viewfinder. And I'll look through that, and it's got all these mirrors inside of the camera that reflect what's going on through here to my eye. So right now, I can see all of you through my camera. Uh, and then when I press this button, the mirror jumps out of the way and shows it to the actual sensor. And that's how you take a picture. So that's when you, when you hear the that's actually a moving part inside the camera. Uh, and so when I'm looking through here, I see what my eyes see, which your eyes are so adaptive and so quick to fix things in the room. Whether it's too bright, too dark, your eyes adapt to that. Um, a camera, however, the sensor, it has to be predetermined. It has to be prepared for what's going on. And so when I look through this viewfinder, you guys look really great. I mean, wow, just amazing. Uh, but my camera may not be that. And if I snap that photo and I haven't thought about how bright it is in here, the photo is going to come out potentially really bright or really dark. It's not going to come out the way that it's intended to. Uh, and so what I have to do is check 
And there's one of two ways I can do that. One is by kipping, which means that I take a photo and I immediately look at it. Take a photo, look at it. It's called kipping. Whoa. Uh, it slows you down really fast. Uh, and then there's another thing called a histogram. Who knows what a histogram is? Any chance? Brett does. Um, where, where did you learn about a histogram? Photoshop. Photoshop. Yeah, Photoshop. Uh, you're definitely going to find it there. It basically is this graph that shows you how bright or how dark an image is uh, by showing you the values in the image. So if there's a lot of dark shadows, you'll see a lot of stuff like these bars going up and down on the shadow side. But then across the spectrum, you have the bright side. So if a photo's too bright, then you're going to have a lot of white over here. And the goal in photography is simple. Instead of it being too bright or too dark, you want the histogram to look nice and even in the middle somewhere. That means that you have a good exposure. You can see what's going on. There's plenty of light for you to see what's going on, but not too much or else you still can't see what's going on. That's the struggle of photography. And the problem with a lot of photographers and people who don't know a lot about photography is that they'll pick up a camera, they'll open up their phone, and they'll take photos and not really think about what the camera actually sees. They'll snap a photo, and then you go back and look at it later and you realize, oh man, I missed it. I didn't capture what I wanted to capture. I can't even see what's going on here. Especially with disposable cameras, we all know the mystery of throwing that camera into to one of the companies that goes through and actually shows us what's going on. We get these photos back and we're like, oh man, I thought I was better at doing this. But uh, you know, I guess I'll keep the photos or at least three out of the 50 that I took because the rest of them didn't look quite like I expected. You know, the Christian life can be like that, where we sort of get into the motions of, oh man, I'm so excited to take the photos of life, to go around and do life. And we don't really take a minute to step back and look to kip at our photos and realize, oh man, I've missed something. Oh man, I, I was looking through my own lens but I wasn't paying attention to what God saw in my life. I wasn't trying to see if me and the camera were seeing the same things, we're doing the same things, we're going in the same direction. And so it's important for us to take a moment to step back and think about what God expects of us. And, what, and I could say it this way, what God desires for us. And uh, if you want to be a person after God's own heart, well, it's quite simple to explain you desire what God desires. You love what God loves, you hate what God hates. We want to be a people, his children, who desire what God desires. And so we need to know what God desires to begin with. And in Psalm 15, it's a very short psalm, only five verses, David sort of gives us a snapshot of God's desire for us. And it deals with God's presence. As you turn there, I'll go ahead and talk about just that first verse where he says, Lord, who abides in your tabernacle? Lord, who dwells in thy holy hill? Now David is talking about two different locations, the tabernacle, which we know is, is the, the preliminary to the temple in essence. It was the portable worship center for the Israelites. And so when he says, Lord, who abides in your tabernacle? The idea there with abide means someone who, who literally dwells, someone who, who spends a lot of time in. The word dwell gets a little more specific. It has the idea of making a home out of a place. And so David's asking a very interesting question. He says, Lord, who is at home 
in your presence? Who dwells where you dwell? Who is in your tabernacle? Who is in your holy hill, that dwelling place of you that I look forward to one day? Who is comfortable in his presence? And for us, this is slightly different, uh, a slightly different approach to it because we know that God's presence is with us always. And even more so than in the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit only indwelled for moments, the Holy Spirit dwells within us permanently, which means that we are now God's temple, which means we are now the dwelling place of God. His presence is always with us. So the question is, are we comfortable in his presence? You know, when, when we really think about God dwelling with us, being in his presence, there is an aspect of remembering who God is. The priest would never walk into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle without evaluating his life and thinking through, is there any way that I have wronged God, that I have done something and I've been hiding it and there's some shame and some guilt that would make me uncomfortable as I approach God's throne. And the Bible says that we have this confidence in Jesus Christ because of his forgiveness to come before God's throne. We know that there is no more judgment. There is no more of a casting aside if we come to God's throne and we have failed in some way. But there is this fellowship, this relationship that God wants to have with each of us. And I wonder if these verses that David describes here is describing your relationship with God and the way that God has impacted your life. Really, the premise that David is building this on is that someone who is close to God, who is comfortable in his presence, is someone who reflects God and shows his presence to other people. Someone who is close to God reflects God. And so that's what we have in these verses. In verse 2, he says this, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Right off the bat, he starts describing, okay, what does this person look like? When you're close to God, how does God change your life? What does it look like if you have no guilt when you come before God's throne? He starts off by saying, he that walks uprightly. Now the word uprightly there, it's also used in Job chapter 1 where he talks about the character of Job and how Job was a perfect man. Now, when the Bible says perfect, it doesn't mean that he was literally without sin, like, like in the respect is like how Jesus was perfect without sin. But the idea is, is maturity, this completion, the idea of he was following God's path. He was doing what God wanted him to do. So when we say someone walks uprightly, what we're talking about here is someone who walks right, who knows God's path and follows it. Someone who knows what God desires of them and they follow him. It means following God without detours. Imagine you're about to enter a forest, and there are multiple paths branching off in different directions. When you walk into that forest and you begin trekking down that path, you've got God in front of you walking. And if God turns right, you follow. If he turns left, you follow. Even if you look down the path and you realize this seems like it's going back and forth, wouldn't it be easier just to shortcut through the woods and get to the path later on? 
We don't follow the detours. We don't pave our own path. We follow the path that God has given to us. But the question is, do we even know what that path is? Do we know what it means to walk uprightly, to walk right, to follow God? Later on in Psalms 119, uh, you'll know the familiar verse, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. One of those verses that we memorize, but have we really realized that the way that we avoid the dark obstacles in our life that so often trip us up is simply by having the illuminating light of God's word in our life. And how often do we put the lantern down and decide to go out at night and try to pave our own way? No wonder we find ourselves tripping and falling and getting hurt and losing track of where God is because we don't know where he is. We haven't been getting close to him. We haven't been following him. Who says, he that walks uprightly. This is someone who knows the path God has laid before them, and they follow it without turning to the right hand or the left. And that phrase should sound familiar to you because that's what he says to Joshua. Joshua takes over leadership from Moses. Moses is dead. Joshua is filling big shoes. And God says, follow the commandments that I've given to Moses. Don't turn to the right or to the left. And if you do that, Joshua, you'll find great success. The only place in the Bible that we use that word, success. There's no coincidence in that. Someone who walks uprightly, who knows the path, they follow it. And if they trust in God, God will bring them to success. That's someone who is in his presence. They walk right. But then he says, and worketh righteousness. Someone who does right. Someone who is in, his, in God's presence and is comfortable in his presence is someone who walks right. They do right. And what do we mean by works righteousness? By doing right. This is the idea of, of not just sitting on the sidelines and avoiding evil. Because we, we can be really good at doing that. We, we, especially the longer you are in church, you know, sometimes it feels like, okay, well, here's a list of do's and don'ts, right? Uh, and we often focus on the don'ts because they're more easily noticeable. Oh yeah, you're doing something that you shouldn't do. Let's go ahead and stop that. And though that is part of the Christian life, realizing that there are parts of our life that reflect the old man and we need to remove those from our lives, our life, our walk with God is not about just avoiding bad stuff. Doing right is an action. It's actively looking for ways to do good in this world to other people, to, do, to actively look for ways to do good in this world. Again, it's not sitting on the sidelines and maybe telling someone else what they should and shouldn't do, but it's getting up, seeing something that needs to be done, and doing it. And I wonder how many of us have had opportunities to do good, and we let it slip by because we convinced ourselves it was okay that we weren't doing something else instead. There was a, a song recorded by Steve Green not that long ago. Um, and the song is called, Will You Forgive? It's a beautiful song. I encourage you guys to look it up. Um, where he, he asks the Lord, Lord, will you forgive the sins that I commit? And he goes on and he describes different kinds. Will you forgive? And Lord, when you're done forgiving, you're not done. Because there's more that you need to forgive. And in the second verse he says this, Lord, will you forgive the sin which I did shun for years? 
but wallowed in the score. Lord, I avoided that sin for so long, but I turned a blind eye to everything else that I was doing. Lord, will you forgive that sin? And he will. So the question for us is to see, am I actively doing right? Am I actively looking for ways to bring about the good of other people, to share the gospel with other people, to live the way that Christ lived in this life? Or am I content just to go to church, maybe read my Bible, and then complain about all the bad things that other people are doing in the world? This is someone who does right. Someone who is comfortable in God's presence is not comfortable sitting on the sidelines. But they are looking for ways to help other people. When they see someone on the side of the road, their first thought is not, oh, well, they just need to find a job. It's actually thinking about that person and what God could do in their life, what they need, and seeing if you can fill that need in some way, whatever the situation may be. He that walks right, he that does right, and he that speaks the truth in his heart. Speaks the truth in his heart. And that right off the bat, in my mind, because you know, we, we get a lot of messages around the, around our, in our culture about truth and what truth is and, and everyone believing their own truth. And what does true mean for you? And so it's easy if we just look at that face value. It might sound like, oh, he speaks the truth that is in his heart. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to speak what's true for me. And you're going to go around and speak what's true for you. And we'll all know each other's truth and we'll just have a great time. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea is actually speaking the truth to yourself, in your heart. So someone who is comfortable in God's presence, someone who is so close to God that their life is reflecting God in the world, they walk right, they do right, and they think right. It's not enough for me to say, oh, well, I'm going to live a certain way whenever other people can see what's going on. And so from the outside, I look great. But it's someone who is genuine on the inside, someone who knows the truth, believes the truth. It's not just teaching from a pulpit or from across the counter at a restaurant or uh, in school from uh, a podium or from a desk to other students. We're not just saying things, but we truly believe it. And in fact, I think that's the way that it's supposed to work. We speak the truth in our hearts, it transforms our lives, and in doing so, the inside then becomes the outside. We can become just like the Pharisees if we think that walking right and trying to check off a list and doing right, perhaps even trying to do charitable things but making sure that we record it so everyone can see what's going on, we can sometimes tell ourselves, you know, that's enough. That means I'm a good person. That means that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But do you actually speak the truth in your heart? Do you remind yourselves of what God tells us in his word? The power of the gospel, the need for other people to be saved, the mercy that God shows to other people, the love that he sheds abroad. Are we speaking these truths in our hearts? You know, that, that's one of the reasons why we memorize verses. Uh, and, and there were quite a few years there uh, where I was, I was not against memorizing verses, but I think I grew up and I, I felt like you know, I was memorizing verses and not really being told why. You know, like there were verses and I sort of understood what they meant, but they were always out of context, so they were good verses. 
but it was more so just like, hey guys, memorize this reference. And then next, next week, here's, here's another reference to memorize. And no one ever really told me, well, why am I memorizing this verse? Why is it important? You memorize verses because they impact us, because they, they remind us of important truths that we do not want to forget. So I hope that all of you have verses that you memorize, that you remember, that you play as if it's like a soundtrack in the back of your mind that's looping and looping. Remember that God is your strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Remember that God's word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Someone who is comfortable in God's presence, they walk right, they do right, they think right. And then verse 3, he says, He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, and he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. There in verse 3, someone who is in God's presence, they treat others right. They walk right, they do right, they think right. They treat others right. He that backbites not with his tongue. The idea of backbiting is the idea of searching. It, it's very interesting because backbite just sounds, you know, something that you like do with your mouth, right? We're talking about speech here, definitely. But it's a much more invasive term here. The idea is someone who walks about, sneaking around, peeking around corners, trying to find some dirt on somebody. And then they take that and they share it with somebody else. Who's sneaking around, what can I find today if I look hard enough on their Facebook profile? I might find them say something that's a little too passive aggressive. And then I'll share that with everybody else, and we'll all just have a little powwow about how terrible they are. Think about like the story of Daniel. This is after Persia's taken over and Nebuchadnezzar's out of the scene. And Daniel is one of the high princes. In fact, he's the favorite of Cyrus. The other princes didn't like that. And so they searched, they walked about, they snuck around to find something wrong with Daniel. When they couldn't find something wrong with Daniel, they made something wrong with Daniel. They saw that he prayed every day. Well, how can we turn that on Daniel and make that a problem? And they went to the king and they relished the moment when they came before him and said, Lord, Daniel, he's been breaking the law. He's been praying, because that's bad. That's what backbiting is. We search and find things wrong with other people, and even if we can't find something actually wrong, we find something that just bugs us, and we make it wrong, and we slander them in front of other people. I wonder how often we look at social media and we see what someone else is doing, how they're living their life, what they've been saying, where they've been going. And we are so quick to take that and build a case against them in front of other people. Though having envy and though having bitterness in our heart is a sin, taking that and sharing with other people is poisonous. And that is not reflective of who God is. God does not search our lives and find bad things and then share it with everybody else. God is so amazing. He does the opposite of that because he finds all the bad stuff because he's perfect. 
and his light reveals all of it, it's not hidden to him. He can see all of it, but you know what he does? He shows us true forgiveness, which is not forgiving and forgetting. It's remembering the stuff and choosing not to remember it against people. That's the opposite of backbiting. That's the way that we're supposed to live. That's part of treating others right. Then he says, you don't do evil to his neighbor. Hopefully this is an easy one for us to grasp. This is an action, again, doing something intentionally or perhaps even unintentionally with your words or your actions to hurt other people. I've been looking around. How many of you have done that before? I've actively hurt somebody before. It happens. We've all broken that. We've all felt hurt and wanted to return that hurt. Someone who reflects God, someone who's close to him, doesn't look for ways to hurt other people. They treat others right. They show mercy. They show love. This last one, he says, he don't take up a reproach against his neighbor. And this is really dealing with the idea of love. We have forgiveness. We have gentleness. And we have love here. Because taking up a reproach is the idea of, okay, maybe I wasn't the source, you know, sneaking around and finding this bad stuff on somebody. I wasn't the source. I didn't go looking and then share stuff. No, somebody else came and told me this. And if it's true, whew, it's pretty bad. The idea of taking up a reproach is hearing something, taking it for yourself, believing in it, and then carrying it with you to somewhere else. It's sort of like being the middleman in a gossip chain. I want the store. I'm not, I'm, I'm not the source, but I'm carrying it along with me. True love is different than that. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you've probably heard it called before, it says something very interesting. It says, believeth all things. When you love someone, you believe all things. And what that simply means is that you believe the best about people. Does that mean that you're gullible? No, 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 no. It doesn't mean that we, we hide ourselves away from truths that may get us hurt, you know? People that we love are in the prime position to hurt us. But it's the idea of believing the best about somebody until proven otherwise. And even if you're proved otherwise, you still love them as if it wasn't true. That's true love. That's not taking up a reproach. You hear someone talk about something bad and evil and hurtful about somebody else behind their back, you nip it in the bud. You say, oh, well, I don't know them to be that kind of person. Have you talked to them about that? If you, if you confront someone who's taken up a reproach like that, you know what they're going to respond like, right? Like, well, no, I haven't talked about them. Why would I talk about that? No, of course not. One of the biggest problems with our relationships is that we find dirt, we take up reproaches, and we don't talk. We don't communicate. And people who are close to God will not carry this reproach. They will stop it. They will say, hey, I'm not sure about that. I want to find out what the truth is. And then we need to approach this with love, regardless of what we find the answer to be. That's the way God responds to us. Verse 4, we'll close out pretty quickly with these last few thoughts. Someone who is close to God, who dwells in his presence, they walk right. They know God's path and they follow it. They do right. They don't just avoid evil, but they actively look for ways to help other people. They speak right or think right. They treat others right. 
And then here in verse 4, they encourage right. They encourage right. In verse 4 he says, In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, and he honoreth them that fear the Lord. The idea here is that if there's someone who is blaspheming God's name, someone who is criticizing the faith, someone who is antagonistic towards Jesus, you're not comfortable just sitting at the lunch table and hearing everything going on. No, that, that doesn't mean that we you know, stand up and with you know, our own self-righteousness we yell at them and we get angry at them. We do stand up for God. And that we don't easily slip into this passivity of listening to stuff and not really caring, thinking, oh, it's fine. I was watching a TV show, and um, I forget the name of it, but I just remember the scene was like a group of high schoolers. Uh, they were in front of their lockers, and, and a girl walked by. And some of these guys were saying nasty things about her. But there was one guy in their group who was sitting on the bench, and he just wasn't saying anything, anything at all. He was comfortable to listen to them talk about this girl. And just because he wasn't getting involved, maybe he felt like he was okay. But he didn't feel the need to stand up. And that's not descriptive of this kind of person. They're not comfortable around people who are antagonistic to God. But the inverse is also true. They do honor, they do respect, and are comfortable around those that fear God, those who honor God and reverence God. And they encourage it. They see someone who loves God and who is uh, being vocal about their faith, someone who is being kind to other people, and they encourage that. You know, sometimes we can be so good at picking out bad things about people and saying, hey, you should avoid that, like we talked about a little bit ago. But we so rarely have the same amount of effort to encouraging good in people, too. That's something that I've been convicted about lately as well. I've been listening to uh, a series of videos that we recorded with Pastor Skelly from Faith in Fredericksburg, um, all about mentoring. And he said this very simple phrase, praise the good that you can. Praise the good that you can. You know, it, it can be so easy to see, oh man, you know, this person needs work in this way. They really need to grow in this way. But what are they doing right now that is good? And how can you encourage them to do right? There at the end of this verse, he says, he that swears to his own hurt and changes Someone who makes a promise, and even though it's difficult for them because of the time or the money or the energy involved in it, they keep their word and they follow through. Oh man, it is difficult that God has to deal with all of us sinful people and all the stuff that we do. And yet, even though we could say that it could be to God's hurt that he loves broken people who turn their back and betray him left and right, God keeps his promises. Though I spit in his face every time that I sin as a Christian, he looks at me with mercy. Man, are we people like that who love unconditionally and even just in the broader sense, when we tell someone that we're going to follow through on what we say we're going to do, even if it's to our own hurt, even if it crunches our schedule a little bit, 
even if it means sacrificing in some way. Verse 5, he that puts not out his money to usury, nor take it for reward against the innocent. This is the idea of not being greedy. You know, if you lend someone money because they need it, you don't start tracking interest payments on someone. And when you do give them money, it's with grace. And then uh, the, the other thing here, he says, no, take it for reward against the innocent. The idea is, listen, sometimes you're in a pinch financially, and if someone offers you money to say or do something against somebody else, you don't take it, even if you feel like you want to. I've been in that position, and I think if we were in a, in a position where persecution was more intense, we may be experiencing that kind of thing. If someone's saying, hey, if you rat out this person, if you say this about them, hey, I'll, I'll make it worth your while. Sometimes we can excuse little white lies if it means we get a little bit of something in return. That's not the way that God works. And if we're close to his presence, that's not how we're going to live either. Finally, he says this, he that does this thing, these things shall never be moved. Quite simply, if this is the way that your life looks, if you are close with God, if you are you are looking for ways to help other people, if we are treating others right, you will be standing on a foundation that cannot be moved. And though the storms of life, and though persecution may come your way, and though you might have questions along the way, nothing is going to shake you from God. It can be easy if we let God go and we decide to step away and we're no longer close to him. It can be easy out of his presence to forget what he's done for us, how he treats us every day, where he wants us to go and lose sight of that grand promise of a future in heaven with him that he's promised us. If we stay close to him, we will never be moved. So the question here is, as you're going about life, like a photographer goes about and takes photos, take a minute and think, what's going on? What does my life look like? Am I lined up with what God sees and what God desires for me? And this is a very short list of things for us to think about today. And so I'd ask you to examine your hearts in these specific ways, is there any way that you are not following God in this way? And I encourage you to draw closer to him, dwell in his presence, and he'll change your life and those around you. Would you pray with me as we close? Dear Lord, thank you for uh, the many psalms and the encouragement from the life of David. Um, and how he was so passionate for you, though he was not perfect. And I thank you for this very short psalm that gives us a glimpse at what it looks like when we're close to you. And hopefully, Lord, it's something that we all desire. We desire this peace and this love, and for it to be not only given to us, but powered through us to those around us. And Lord, if there's any way from here, what we've read today, that we have fallen short, pray that you would draw us closer to you.
And as we draw close, we know the promise is you will draw closer to us. Let us dwell in your presence and change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.